let's uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to share in it together. I pray that uh, your hand would be upon us as we study and as we look to these psalms, and I pray that you would encourage our hearts today through the things that we read. I'm so blessed by these psalms, Father, and I just pray that uh, each of us will be blessed before we leave tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. We're going to cover Psalms 7 through 11 tonight. Sometimes believers have to suffer unjustly at the hands of those who oppose us, even though we may have done nothing wrong. During times like these, I believe that it is appropriate for us to call out to God on our behalf, leaving it up to Him to do the right thing. Psalm 7 seems to be the record of an incident like this in the life of David. So let's see how he handled it. It starts off in the title by saying, A meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. And this word meditation is the Hebrew uh, word shigion. Most of the translations use it instead of the word meditation. Um, It's not certain what it means, but many think that it actually refers to a cry of anguish, a poem that is written uh, uh, out of intense emotion. Some have called this psalm the psalm of the slandered saint. Of course, referring to David. That that gives you a little idea of where David is coming from with this. Uh, This fellow Cush, the Benjamite, uh, it says it's concerning him, basically, concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Uh, Apparently this guy Cush was somebody who was accusing David of of wrongdoing or something that was very upsetting to him. And we don't know who who Cush was. Some think that he might actually be Shimei, the one who cursed David as he was leaving Jerusalem when Absalom was trying to usurp um, the throne. Others think that he's just one of the many Benjamites who were opposed to David's rule when he first took over the throne in Judah after the death of Saul. Remember, Saul was a Benjamite. And so, uh, most of the Benjamites were opposed to David taking over the throne. Uh, But maybe he was just one of the more influential and visible uh, Benjamites. He is definitely a Benjamite. uh, We're told his name is Cush. We're not told that it's Shimei. So, I'll go with Cush. And, uh, okay, anyways... Let's start reading now. Let's look first of all at David's plea for deliverance. Uh, Verse 1, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. When David was under attack from this fellow Cush the Benjamites, All that he could do was trust God. Every other support was gone. But he didn't need really any other support. 
You know, sometimes God's strength is evident in helping us through a trial. Other times, it's evident in delivering us from trials. David seemed persuaded that God wanted to deliver him from this trial. In verse 1, notice he says, Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. He believed that God wanted to deliver him. He says, lest they tear me like a lion. David believed there would be grave consequences if he were not delivered from these lion-like enemies. Lest they tear me like a lion. And this understanding, I think, gave David a real urgency in prayer. You know, I believe that sometimes God allows difficult, very difficult circumstances into our lives so that they will awaken this urgency in us. But now notice what he says in verses 3 to 5. He says, O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. I like this about David. He is willing to consider whether or not he may have actually done something to deserve what he was getting. Personally, this is something the Lord has spoken to my heart more than once when when I was being criticized. At first, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I want to defend myself. And I am definitely ready to. You know, let's go to the mat. On this one, buddy, because, you know, you haven't got it right. But then I begin to wonder if the criticism may be justified. You know, maybe it's the criticism hasn't been offered in love. Maybe it's, you know, been offered in spite. And maybe there's been anger involved and, and cruel words and stuff like that. But underneath all of that other stuff, I begin to wonder, is the criticism justified? Maybe I was inconsiderate or mean or cruel uh, or, uh, you know, maybe I was just a jerk. And so I think it's important for us to be open to this possibility. If I have returned evil for good or evil for evil even, or if I've hurt somebody without cause, I need to be, I need to be in, in an attitude of repentance. And I need to be willing to accept whatever is dished out to me. And notice this section ends with that word selah. We talked about that last week. Remember what that means? Yeah, stop, pause, think about it, meditate on it, you know. Because it may be true. I think that's why he put that there. It's something that we all need to consider. We need to stop and think about it. Maybe it's true. Maybe what is happening to me is justified. Maybe I deserve it. So, stop and think about it. If someone is being mean to you, maybe it's because you've been mean to them. If someone is yelling at you, maybe it's because you were yelling at them. You may say they hurt your feelings and so they deserve it. And they may deserve it, but it's not up to you to give it back to them. To dish it out. 
Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And if anyone should render it, it has to be the Lord, not you or me. I love his honesty here. Lord, if I have done this, then let my enemy wipe me out. That's what he's saying. If I have done this, Lord, then let my enemy wipe me out. Are you willing to pray like that? Are we willing to pray like that? Lord, if I am guilty of this offense, then wipe me out. Pretty heavy stuff, huh? Let's look at the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. Now this is interesting. You know, he's calling for God to rise up and and judge the people, right? He's not asking for permission to do it himself. See? He's calling on God. Lord, if they, you know, if I am not guilty of this and they are, then you take care of it. That's essentially what he's saying. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to let you take care of it. Um, you know, I have to believe that David wrote this psalm prior to his sin with Bathsheba because he's asking God to judge him according to his righteousness, according to his integrity. But after his sin with Bathsheba, he doesn't cry out for God's justice, does he? He cries out for his mercy because he knew that he was guilty before God. In Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, he said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, he said. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He wasn't talking about his integrity and his righteousness then. Only the need for God's mercy because he had committed great iniquity. And we have to be, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, we really don't have much to boast about as far as integrity and righteousness goes. We really don't have much. That's why I'm so thankful for the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. As I trust in Him, I get imputed to me His righteousness and His integrity, which is all I need to get into heaven. He goes on in verse 9, he says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. You know, as much as you can fool people by your actions, you can't fool God. Because He examines the heart. He examines the motivation behind our actions. Not many in the church today have taken to the idea that, that we are not to judge another person. I'm sorry, people have taken to the idea that we... We are not to judge another person. 
um, you know, it's usually it comes out in the form of, you know, Matthew 7, verse 1, where Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Who are you to judge me? The Bible says, Judge not, lest you be judged. But you know what? In that verse, Jesus is speaking of dealing with the sin in our own life before we attempt to deal with the sin of others. What he's forbidding there is hypocritical judgment. If we took this as a, as a blanket statement to not judge at all, then what Paul told the Corinthians to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 would be wrong. Remember there was a, uh, uh, an individual there in the church who was committing some pretty grievous sin. Excuse me for just a second here. He was committing some pretty grievous sin. And Paul told the Corinthians to put him out of the fellowship, to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the body, he said, so that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that judgment? Wouldn't they have had to make a judgment concerning that man in order to be able to do that? Yeah, we'll talk. I, I, that's in my notes here. Let me get to it. <laughs> and yet in John 7.24, Jesus said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That's what Jesus said. We are to judge a person's actions, not by our standards or feelings, but with a righteous judgment according to the Word of God. First, we're to judge our own actions. But then when appropriate, we are to judge others. But not by what we feel is right or what we think is okay or what they should be doing, but according to the Word of God. We are not to judge a person's heart, but we are to judge their actions. And be ready have your actions judged too when you put yourself in that place, you know. And certainly, before we engage in judging others, we'd better be sure we've judged ourselves first, taking the log out of our own eye, as Jesus said, so that we can see to remove the speck out of our brothers or our sisters. He goes on in verse 10, My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. David's prior appeal to God's testing of man made him think of the justice of God. Back in verse 9, notice he says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. So, he's thinking here, he's got on his mind the, the justice of God. And he declared this fundamental principle. God is a just judge. This is today a commonly 
and I believe dangerously rejected truth about God. Many anticipate that they'll one day stand before God of great love and great mercy, great warmth and great generosity. They never imagine that they will stand before a God who is perfectly just and who cannot ignore the crime of sin. We can say that sin is a crime, that it breaks the good and the holy law of God. And while all sins are not equally sinful, some sins are worse than others and, I, and, and they will receive a greater condemnation according to Matthew twenty-three fourteen. Yet there are no small sins against a great God. The justice of God is easy to understand if we simply compare to what we expect from an earthly judge. We don't think it's right or good if a human judge excuses crime in the name of compassion. We expect judges to be just. Yet many are absolutely confident that God will be an unjust judge on the day of judgment. And that's what he would be if he ignored sin. He would be an unjust judge. Notice it says that, that he's angry with the wicked every day. That's true. And, and that's, you know, that's not a bad thing. Sometimes we read a passage like that and, and you know, we're afraid that, you know, an unbeliever is going to be critical of us because we believe in a God who is angry you know, with the wicked every day. But God loves them. He does. He loves them. But He is angry with them. And He will judge them if they don't repent and turn to Him. Why? Why is He angry with them? Because He's a holy God. He can't just wink His eye at sin. He can't just say, boys will be boys. He's angry about it because he's a holy God. He has to be angry. It has to be. If he was not angry, then he would not be holy. I think we want him to be holy. Okay, so, I mean, judgment is coming. That's the bottom line. We have to be willing to accept that. Judgment is coming because God is just. We want God to be just, we want him to be loving. He can be loving and still be just. He shows His love to us by providing a way to deal with our sin without us having to experience His judgment. He's loving because He gave His Son to die for us. He provided another way. He allows, He can somehow, in His justice, He can allow somebody else to take our punishment. And that somebody else, of course, has to be perfect himself. Or else he's just dying for his own sins, right? But a perfect sacrifice taking the place of an imperfect sinner. That is allowable under the justice of God. And that's exactly what God has done. Okay, let's see how this whole thing is resolved now. Behold, verse 14, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. 
He made a pit and dug it out, and has fallen into the ditch which He made. His trouble shall return upon His own head, and His violent dealing shall come down on His own crown. The wicked develop their their plans to destroy the godly, and in the end, God turns the tables and they're caught in their own traps. Remember from the book of Esther how Haman made gallows to to hang Mordecai on. And in the end, those gallows were used to hang Haman. The Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. The thing that we need to remember as Christians is that we are God's children. And you don't mess around with his children and get away with it. So verse 17, David ends the whole thing by saying, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. He starts off and he's he's concerned because he's being falsely accused. And then he moves on and he says, well, maybe I haven't been falsely accused. Maybe I deserve this. But Lord, you know. And then he begins to talk about the judgment of God, the just, the justice of God. And finally, uh, in the midst of all that, he, he ends by saying simply, I will praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness and sing praise to the name of God. No longer is His focus on the enemies, on His enemies, but His focus is on the Lord which gives him a brighter outlook. And joy breaks forth in his heart and is heard now from his lips. I will praise the Lord. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord. So, we've got to stay focused on the Lord. And as we do, even when people are trying to make life difficult for us, we can still praise. Sing praise to the Lord. Stay focused on the Lord. Everything else then is seen through that set of eyeglasses. God is a just judge. God is going to take care of it. God is going to make it right. I don't have to take matters into my own hands. God will take care of it. Okay, Psalm 8. The title of this psalm reads, To the chief musician on the instrument of gaff. The Hebrew is, is uh, this word gittith and is believed to be a stringed instrument of Philistine origin. It's, it's called uh, a psalm of David. So the audience of the psalm is the chief musician. David is the author and the instrument to be used is the gittith. In this psalm, David speaks of the glory of God and how the glory of man and His destiny reflects upon God. Some have titled this psalm, The Greatness of God, because it really does speak of God's greatness. And remember something very simple. Only God is great. Only God is great. Many over the years have considered themselves and others to be great. But in the end, their bodies fail, And their candle is snuffed out. 
which proves just one thing. Only God is great. Okay, God's majesty and strength overall. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Notice David begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord. The first Lord there, notice it's in capitals. That's Yahweh, the name of God. I am that I am, or uh, the becoming one. That's what Yahweh means. It's the covenant name of God given to Moses. It's the relationship of God to man. I am the becoming one. The second Lord there is, is capital L, but then small letters, O-R-D. The Hebrew Adonai. This is the position of God to His people. Another way of saying that God is our Master. He is our Lord. David also recognized that though the Lord was Israel's covenant God, He was also God of more than just Israel. His name, he says, is excellent in all the earth. So this isn't just for Israel. It's, it's for all of us. Notice also, he has set his glory above the heavens. Think about that. God's glory is above the heavens. It's above our solar system. It's above our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. His glory is above. It means it's greater than the known universe. There could be as many as 500 billion galaxies in our universe with an average of 500 billion stars in each galaxy. Some more, some less. Think about that. That could be as many as 250 sextillion stars or more. That's 250 with 21 zeros after it. <laughs> the number is incomprehensible. Think about the amount of power that it would take to put all of these celestial bodies in motion. I mean, just think about the amount of power that it would take to just get the planets around our sun, spinning around the sun. And our little solar system moving through space along with the rest of our galaxy. Think about the amount of power. You know, we, we generate power through various means. You know, we say this is a, a, a huge, this is a large power plant. It generates, you know, X amount of kilowatts of power. You know, we say, oh, look at the power. Look at the power that, you know, is being put out by this dam or whatever. Or, you know, people are saying that about the wind farms and so forth. But you know what? That's not power. I mean, comparatively speaking. The, the amount of power that it would take to bring our universe into existence is just, you know, we can't begin to conceive of such power. And yet, Verse 3 says that it's just the work of God's fingers. Just His fingers. 
got it all going. Amazing, wouldn't you say? Verse 2, he says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. This is saying that God uses weakness to defeat the mighty. And in this, God reveals His greatness again. His strength is more than sufficient to empower the weakest of men and to overturn the mightiest of foes. So if you're feeling weak today, call upon the Lord and He will give you His strength to overcome. And be sure that His strength is more than enough. More than enough. By the way, in Matthew 21.16, Jesus quoted from this verse to justify allowing the children to cry hosannas to Him as He entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Jewish leaders wanted them to stop, but Jesus said no. What they were doing was a fulfillment and an illustration of this very principle. And Jesus wasn't about to tell them to stop. When we are able to praise God in the midst of trials and continue to do the right thing, it's a sign of God's strength being manifest in our lives. Well, David goes on to talk about God's sovereignty and His supremacy overall. Verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Again, David is saying that when we look at the vastness of creation, as we look into the universe that is some 24 billion light years in diameter, that for God was just the work of his fingers. Just finger work, you know. He didn't even break out in his sweat. And yet when it comes to man, as insignificant as he is compared to the universe, God cared more for him. Yes, the creation of the universe was the snap of his fingers. But for man, he rolled up his sleeves and he offered his arms and his hands to be nailed to the cross so that we might live. Creation was easy. Redemption cost him his life. What a mighty God we serve. How excellent is your name in all the earth. Verse 5, For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Generally speaking, David is saying that God made us a little lower than the angels. And notice that that we are not the byproduct of some random chance happenings. But it says, God made us. We didn't evolve from some ooze, some primordial ooze into human beings. God made us. Now this is also attributed to Jesus in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. There we read, but... One testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. 
you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, in other words, like us as men, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Not that Jesus ceased being God, but that he became flesh and dwelt among us so that he could pay the penalty for our sin with his life. Because of Jesus, man not only has dignity, but he has destiny. Because even though we were made a little lower than the angels, the Bible says that one day we are going to judge the angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. If we're going to judge the angels, that's what Paul's argument there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is, then we ought to be able to judge in the matters that are before us on this earth as well. That's right, exactly. So, verse 6 goes on. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Now notice that. That pass through the paths of the seas. In the 1800s, a man who was in the hospital had his nurse read to him from the Bible. And she read this psalm to him. And when she read that line that passed through the paths of the seas, all of a sudden, a light went on inside of him. He knew that there were paths in the sea. Now, not, not, not you know, like we normally think of paths you know, where you walk on. But currents, currents that move pretty consistently in the same direction. And he later went out and he located all the major currents which are now used as shipping lanes. And in the process, saving millions of dollars in fuel costs. This man's name is Matthew Fontaine Mari. And he is considered today to be the father of modern oceanography and naval uh, meteorology. He was nicknamed Pathfinder of the Seas. Interesting. And, and, And he got the idea from this psalm. And of course, these verses teach us again what Genesis teaches us, that we were given dominion over the things of the earth, the plants, the animals, and so on. We're not called to destroy those things, not that kind of dominion, but to care for and to tend it, to be responsible stewards of it. Now, he ends in verse 9 by saying again, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And so, summarizing all that he had said, David concludes again where he began by declaring God's greatness. As the psalm began, so it ends, with the majesty of God. It is God, not man, who is to be praised. He alone deserves our worship. Our God is great. His greatness 
is shown in his ability to not only control the vastness of the creation, but in his ability to use the weakness of man to overthrow the mighty. Paul put it another way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27. He said, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. God is the one who is powerful. He is the one who is great. Not us. But as we trust in Him, we can benefit from His power. We can benefit from His greatness. Okay, Psalm 9. Some have uh, titled this psalm, Awaiting the Final Verdict. This is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, but not just generally. David is especially thankful for God's rule over the earth and for the fact that his enemies will be dealt with. So, similar to Psalm 7. He starts off by offering his praise. Verse 1, he says, Well, to the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, the Psalm of David, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart, I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So the first thing David does is talk about what he will do. Notice four times he says, I will. He says, I will praise. I will tell. I will be glad. I will sing praise, he says. These are all acts of the will. Things that he has decided that he is going to do. They're not feelings. They're actions. Things that we need to do whether we feel like it or not. In fact, verse 1, in verse 1, he says he's going to do it with his whole heart. That's wholeheartedness. You know, is your praise wholehearted or is it only half-hearted? Have you spent any time thinking or talking about His marvelous works lately? You know, He has done some pretty marvelous things. We've, we've already talked a little bit about it. Think about some of those marvelous things. Talk about them. They are sure to make you glad again and make you want to sing praise to His name. Just think about your own life. Just think about what you were and how He's changed you. That's pretty marvelous, you know. Amen. Exactly. And that's just what David is doing right now. But now, he makes a declaration in verse 3. He says, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, Destructions are finished forever and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. Notice, David is thrilled with the presence of the Lord. But his enemies are filled with panic. 
They're running from God, but stumbling in the process and perishing, according to verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish. In other words, when they turn back, when they turn around and run the other way. David says they're going to fall and perish at your presence. Again, David's thrilled with the presence of the Lord. But his enemies are full of panic. God has destroyed their cities permanently and even wiped out the memory of them, according to verse 6. And yet David is thrilled. What a difference in perspectives. You know, one, one person is thrilled and the others are panicking. What's the difference? The difference is your relationship with God. That's the difference. Uh, I like verse 4 at the end when it says, You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. That's a real comfort to know. Even though things may seem to be going haywire around me, I know that everything's going to eventually turn out okay. Because God is on the throne and He is judging righteously. Remember, He's a just judge. He's going to judge those who deserve it. He's going to condemn those who deserve it. And He's going to reward those who trust in Him. That's what David says again in the next two verses. He says, But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared His throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Then he goes on in verses 9 to 10 to say some uh, incredibly neat things. Verse 9, he says, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Are you feeling a little or a lot? Oppressed? Did you know that the Lord is your refuge? Are you enduring times of trouble? Again, did you know that God is a refuge for you? I like the emphasis here. By using essentially the same word twice in verse 9. Notice he he says, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. I know that the uh, New Living Translation and the NIV translate the word two different ways. But it's the same Hebrew word. It means refuge or shelter or stronghold. God is that for us when we are going through times of oppression and trouble. He is our refuge. He is our stronghold. He is our shelter. Have you been seeking the Lord? Look at verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Have you been seeking the Lord? Did you know that God will never forsake those who seek Him? Notice the beginning of verse 10 again. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. The name is always an indication of the character. Once you know about God's character, it becomes much easier to trust Him. Once you know that He is faithful, you know that He is long-suffering, you know that He is loving, you know that He will never leave or forsake you, it becomes a lot easier to trust Him. He goes on in verse 11 and he says, 
Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare His deeds among the people. When He avenges blood, He remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. You know, this is, this is really a, a, a call to preach to those around us. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare His deeds among the people. It's, it's something that we definitely need to take seriously. If you know God intimately, if He has intervened in your behalf and delivered you from harm, you've got to worship Him and you've got to tell others about it. God remembers those who trust in Him. He does not forget the cry of the humble. That's a wonderful thing if you ask me. Let's look at David's prayer. He says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, verse 13. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment He executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation, Selah. Now, as they set these traps to catch animals, there was always a chance that they might forget where they set the traps and then get caught themselves. David is saying that God has a way of foiling the plans of the enemy and causing them to get caught in their own Traps. We talked about Haman already. And at this point, we see what really is a double pause there. This word meditation, if you're reading out of the New King James, uh, and, and, and then the word Selah. The word for meditation is Higeon, and it means meditate. Similar to that Shigeon, which we read there at the beginning of, of Psalm 7, but it's not the same thing. Hig, this word Higeon means to meditate. And then the word selah again means to pause and reflect. So, sort of a double meditation there. He's saying, hey, stop and really think about this one because this is pretty important. The idea of setting a trap and then falling into it ourselves is a scary thing. How many of you have set a mouse trap and then had it spring on your finger? <laughs> I have. It hurts. It really hurts. So think about it. If you don't want to fall into a trap, then don't go around setting traps. Deal honestly and justly and mercifully with people and you won't fall into your own trap. It goes on in verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. What a warning to this nation or any nation that turns its back on God. You know, we have fallen far in just over 200 years from a nation that loved God to a nation that says God is dead. 
Is it too late for America? I don't know. But I do know this. Nineveh was only 40 days away from destruction. God's judgment. And they repented and were spared. I think the same can happen in America if people would turn back to God and repent of their sins. How foolish for us as individuals or as a nation to think of ourselves more highly than we should. We were created a little lower than the angels and yet we exalt ourselves high above God. Honestly, we need to get the fear of God back in our hearts to to respect Him and to give Him the glory that's due His name which will then put us in a proper place. So, believers need to remember that when they are persecuted by the ungodly, which is what this psalm is all about, God will come to their rescue and defeat the adversaries. Sometimes that will be in this life. Sometimes it will wait for the final judgment. But God will make right every injustice suffered by His people at the hands of their enemies. So, when you are attacked, what should you do? Call on the Lord to be your stronghold. And don't seek vengeance yourself. Remember, the battle belongs to the Lord, according to Second Chronicles 20, verse 15. Humble yourself under that mighty hand of God, and He will work things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1.11 It was A.W. Tozer who said, The resurrection and the judgment will demonstrate before all worlds who won and who lost. And then he said, we can wait. We can wait. Amen? Psalm 10. This psalm has been called God's inevitable triumph. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? By the way, let me just say, some people think that originally these two psalms ran together. And the reason is is because there's an acrostic between the two of them. It means that um, each of the verses starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. And it, it starts in, in chapter or Psalm 9 and then it, it just continues on in chapter 10, uh, Psalm 10. So they think that originally they were separated but because, or together, but then they were separated because the, the content is so different. In other words, it doesn't continue along with the same thought. It, it continues almost with an opposite Kind of thought. David is um, speaking about the fact in Psalm 9 that he is eventually going to be vindicated. And, and he's pretty confident of that through the psalm. But as we get into Psalm 10, it's going to sound like just exactly the opposite. He's feeling exactly the opposite, that God has forsaken him. So, okay, so that gives you a little, little bit of an idea. Uh, certainly in the end, he's going to come back to God's. Uh, inevitable triumph. But in the beginning it sounds like, oh, you know, everything's gone wrong and nothing's going to change. It's just going to get worse and worse. Which is kind of the way we think sometimes, you know. This one opens up actually with a complaint against God. So, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? (laughs) You know, I can understand what the psalmist is getting at here. Sometimes 
it can seem as if God doesn't really care about what's going on in our lives. I felt that way before. And that's because he's not doing things the way I think he should. The psalmist thinks that God may be hiding himself because he doesn't want anybody to know he's there. You know, or maybe he's just standing far, far away with hope that no one will notice him and, and, you know, want to call on him for anything. Or maybe, uh, you know, who knows? But, you know, if God is doing that, then he's really no better than the school child who just wants to sit in the back row of the classroom so that the teacher won't call on him. Of course, God isn't like that, as we'll see in a few minutes. But, you know, when we start thinking in those terms, God, why have you forsaken me? Why don't you answer me? We're sort of thinking that he's, you know, doesn't want to have anything to do with us. He doesn't love us. He doesn't care about us. But he does care. And he does love. We'll get to that in a minute. But now the psalmist describes the wicked. He says, The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. So the wicked is constantly bragging about what he's going to do and the things that he's going to get. He blesses the greedy and he renounces the Lord. This is what the wicked does. He's definitely got things backwards here. You know, the wicked just boast about their evil. No longer is it done in the closet or in secret, but it's displayed for everybody to see. You know, we are a nation today that calls good evil and evil good because there is no king on the throne of our hearts. And we're not just, you know, talking conceptually about evil anymore. We are calling what was at one time considered evil. We're calling it good. And we're parading it in the streets. Huh? It is. But we're calling it good. Not us. The... <laughs> it's evil. It's evil. But many call it good. They say there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, verse 4. He says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. In the Hebrew, the phrase God is in none of his thoughts can be translated, all his thoughts are, quote, there is no God. In other words, he's saying to himself over and over again in his mind, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God. Why would he have to do that? Right, because his conscience tells him that there is a God. So in order to override his conscience, he has to keep telling himself over and over again that there is no God, or this isn't wrong, or I can do this with impunity, or, you know, any number of things. If you tell yourself something long enough, if you tell yourself a lie long enough, pretty soon you begin to believe it. But man is constantly trying to convince himself that there is no God. And as they continue down this path, their hearts are growing cold to what God has placed in their hearts, that there's a God and, and man's desire to find him. And this is always a sad commentary on anybody. And unfortunately, it's true in a practical sense of many people who claim to be Christians. If your life was being summed up, could it be said of you, there is no room for God 
There is no room for God. Look at verse 5. It says, His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of His sight. As for all His enemies, He sneers at them. He has said in His heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. You know, that's, that's sure uh, a sense of false security if I've ever heard one. I'm sure this verse has never been true of really anybody who has ever lived. No one's ways are always prospering. No one can say that they've never been moved or never been in adversity. But he goes on to verse 7. Uh, his mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages, in the secret places. He murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God is forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. He figures that because God isn't striking him dead for his evil, then God must have a poor memory or maybe he doesn't care or maybe he's too weak to do anything or maybe he doesn't exist. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. The reason God doesn't do anything is because he's merciful. And he's always desiring to extend that mercy even to the most evil of the evil. So look at David's plea in his praise, verse 12. He says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, You will not require an account. The reason they continue down this evil path is, is they don't really believe that there's going to be a judgment. That's what he means there when he says, You will not require an account. I'm not going to have to answer for my sins. They don't believe that they're going to have to stand before God. How wrong they are. Verse 14. But you have seen, for you observe and grief. I'm sorry. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. To repay it by your hand, the helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Notice verse 14. God is aware of our trouble and our grief. And God will do what is right in each and every circumstance. I love the fact that all through the scripture, it declares God's interest and concern for the poor, for the widow, for the fatherless, for the oppressed. God loves them. God is concerned for them. And because of that, God will deal with the wicked. He'll make it so that they can no longer do any more wicked things. That's essentially what he means when he says, break the arm of the wicked man. You know, not just to be uh, cruel or anything like that, but if you break somebody's arms, then they can no longer do wicked with their arms, right? They can't do wickedness anymore. So it's just, a, it's kind of an image there. Uh, you know, you see a guy that's got broken arms and he can't use those arms to, to do wickedness to anybody else. He goes on in verse 16, he says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his, his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice, 
to the fatherless and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. The man of the earth is obviously the evil man so that he may oppress no more. So again, God will deal with the wicked. They won't get away with anything. And God does stand up for the fatherless and the widow and the orphan. Don't mess with them because God is the defender of the underdog. So don't mess with the underdog. If you want to do something good, help the underdog. Be a blessing to the underdog because God loves them. So in order to endure the persecution of the wicked, we have to, again, keep our eyes on the Lord. I know it sometimes looks like the wicked are winning. But we can't get distracted by that. We can't lose sight of the inevitable victory of the kingdom of God and the inevitable judgment of the world of wickedness. The world will one day follow or fall under, under divine judgment. One day it will fall into the hands of the living God. So refuse to find your pleasure in worldly pursuits. Instead, find your joy in God Himself and you will never be disappointed. Okay, Psalm 11, quickly. When the foundations tremble. This is a psalm of confidence and trust in God despite some very difficult circumstances. It's easy to trust the Lord when things are going well. But how easy is it and how good are you at trusting the Lord when things are going lousy? Sir Cliff Richard, British singer, around the time of the Beatles, still around today, I think, uh, but in somewhere 74, 75, he was converted, became a Christian. He said, the more we depend on God, the more dependable we find He is. And that's really what this, this is all about. When the foundations tremble, depend on God. He starts off uh, by speaking about uh, trust and then the temptation that comes upon him. He says, in the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? So, in the Lord, I put my trust. It's a great way to start, you know. How important it is to have the proper focus. Putting your trust in the Lord who is control. It is out of that that you can rest. It's out of that that you can have peace when you trust in the Lord. You know, so often when we begin to experience trials, we so quickly find ourselves in turmoil. And, and, and then eventually we come to the place of trust. But wouldn't it be better to begin at the place of trust to continually remind ourselves every day that we need to trust the Lord and that today we are going to trust the Lord no matter what? Do you think that if we started in the place of trust that it would make life's trials a little easier to bear? Well, he goes on. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, um, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Apparently David's enemies were looking like they had the upper hand in his life. And so there were those who thought that he should take the easy way out. 
they were counseling him, you know, just flee to the mountains for safety. I thank God that there are some who are not so willing to take the easy way. They'll go the harder way because they know it's God's way. Back in the 1980s, it was discovered that during the communist reign in China, in the persecution of Christians there, the church not only did not shrink in China, but it began to grow by leaps and bounds. Some groups of Christians outside of China, upon hearing this, began to smuggle Bibles into China. Brother Andrew and, and uh, ministry that he was part of Open Doors and a ministry called Living Water were at the forefront of this. Our little church in Pomona was supporting the ministry of Living Water at the time. And then came the Tiananmen Square Massacre, June 4, 1989. Afterwards, much of the Bible smuggling activity ceased. But then, in September of 1989, we received a letter from the Living Water office in Japan. Let me read to you what it said. I just happened to find this in my file yesterday. It says, Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, thank you very much for your prayer and the gift to the Chinese people. Since that Tiananmen Square massacre, we stopped going and had been watching the situation for a while. But now we started going back to China with Bibles again these days. We did not see any tourists this time, but Chinese people's everyday life seemed to be kept all right. Chinese Christians told us, we are ready for persecution every day. Please, Come and bring us Bibles. And then she ended uh, the, prayer, the letter by saying, Please pray for them. These Chinese Christians are willing to take the hard way because they know it's God's way. They're not casual about their faith like so many today are in America. Let me just give you another one example. I just got this today in my email about the same sort of thing. This is from Clint uh, Pittman. And he's asking for prayer for this guy. This guy has sent him this prayer request. Let me read to you the prayer request. Hey guys, quick request for prayer. This is a guy that is in uh, Malaysia. It's 3.15 in the morning here on the fourth day of Ramadan and one of the new Malay believer families, Juan and I led to the Lord, have been arrested. They have four kids from 10 to 2 years old and they arrested the kids as well. There is the possibility the kids will be taken from them and put in, quote, good Muslim homes, unquote. From one of the melees that got away, I have a very vague idea where they are. They are at one of the Pusat uh, Permurniahans, which is a religious, a religious rehabilitation center. Deep in the jungle, about two hours north of here. I have not yet located this particular one, but I'm heading out to search for it right now. You can imagine what takes place at these religious rehabilitation centers where the Muslims are, are taking these Christians and they're probably torturing them until they, you know, uh, confess that Allah is God and that Jesus is not, you know. So, he's, this guy's going out to look for this place. He wants to find this place. And he says, I'm just getting over strep throat and so not performing my best here. My goal right now is to just hook up with them. Whether that means getting arrested, visiting them, 
There's no such thing as visitation at these places. The locations are big secrets. Or at least screaming encouragement from outside the walls. From what I understand, several other melees from an IM group were also arrested tonight. Please pray for these believers. They're extremely young. Bob has been saved. And he's putting these names in quotes because they're not the real names. Bob has been saved about eight months and his wife about two months. Pray that Jesus' glorious presence overwhelms them, that heaven seems close and earth seems a vapor, that God would give them boldness, joy, peace, and hold their precious yet delicate faith strong in his hands and keep them from falling. I ask that you pray for me as well, that God would grant me eyes to see the battle clearly from his perspective and not an earthly perspective. Woo! People who are willing to take the hard way because they know it's God's way. Let's look at what David has to say next to get the answer to this. You know, Why are these people willing to do this? Why did they seem so daring in their faith? Verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Here is what you need to do when you're going through difficult times where you have to make the tough choice to serve the Lord or to serve sin. Here's what you need to do. Look up. Because God is in control. He sees right into the heart of man. Verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Judgment, again, is going to come upon the wicked. It's sad that we don't share that truth. But by hiding it, which is the custom of many today in the church, by ignoring it or by burying our head in the sand, it won't change that truth that God is going to judge the wicked. He's going to judge the wicked. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. So God will lift up the righteous and He'll judge the unrighteous. Once again, the Lord will do what is right. He is a just judge. My only concern is that my heart should be bent on serving Him no matter what. If that is true of us, then God will take care of us. And if our enemy ends up doing us in, well, that's okay too. As the NIV translates the last phrase in verse 7, upright upright men will see his face. So, if the enemy does a sin, oh well, we're going to see God's face anyways. What difference does it make? Folks, if you're living for the Lord, you're going to have to endure trials. Some from circumstances, some from persecution. Here's what you need to do when that happens. Remain strong in the Lord. Call out like David did. In the Lord, I put my trust. If we'll do that and we'll keep on doing that, nothing, nothing, nothing will be able to defeat us. Amen? Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the encouragement that we have received tonight from King David.
We pray, Lord, that these lessons will be inserted into our hearts and that they would change our lives, Lord. They would change the way we deal with stuff today. They would change the way that we deal with um, difficulty and people who make lives our lives difficult just because we're Christians. Lord, show us how to respond when uh, people treat us badly. And, and more than anything, Lord, help us not to respond in like kind, but to return good for evil so that you can be glorified. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.